Well, good morning. It's a beautiful day. And uh, my name is Jacob Yarborough. I serve as one of the elders here at Calvary Bible Church. And I'll be reading to you this morning from the book of John. The book of John, chapter 13, verses 31 through 36. And I invite you to, to read along with me if you have your Bible with you. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Starting in verse 31. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little longer, a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. Let you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And all God's people say, well, uh, good morning, how are we? But I encourage you to go ahead and put one finger in John chapter 13, that's our main text this morning. And the other text that we're going to be looking at is John chapter 15, and we'll be informing some of our discussion and some other passages as well. And we are today in our third week of a four-week series on going out, a sermon series on evangelism, on sharing our faith. And this was kind of birthed, so to speak, out of our July elder meeting. The elders uh, a couple of months ago just said, hey, Byron, we really want to hear your heart for this season, for for this year of going out to the zip code and to the world. And so I kind of changed course in the process of my preparation, and uh, this is what we're talking about for the month of August, and then we'll start the, probably the minor prophets in September, October, November, and then so forth and so on. Okay, all right. Now I would like to begin with this thought. I shared it last week. For there is a mission field before us. Behold, lift up your eyes and see the fields, that they are white for harvest. Today I want to talk to you about our best evangelism tool, the best thing that we can do to actually reach the lost. So, you know, so many times when we actually think about reaching our neighbor, sharing the gospel with a family member or a child or a parent or a spouse, we automatically think about the words that we're supposed to say. Anybody else in the room on that one? And that, that kind of causes us a little bit of stress, right? Anybody else tracking on that one? We, we just say, well, what do I say or what do I do or how do I say it or what, what do I leave in and what do I leave out? Do I talk about the Trinity? Do I talk about all the stuff of theology? But I think there's something 
even more important and powerful and more fundamental in sharing our faith than just the words we say. The best evangelism tool we have to reach the lost is not our charm, it's not charisma, it's not opportunity, but it's something that makes us stand out from the world. Our best evangelism tool is what differentiates us from the darkness. Today I want to talk to you about standing out, standing out for the gospel as lights in the darkness. Only the brightest light can dispel the deepest darkness. How many of you have ever uh, been part of a big group of people before? Anybody ever been to like, a concert or Grissom High School or UAH or anything like that? Well, I, I graduated from Grissom High School in 2003. My, I guess I should have gone to my 20th anniversary. I just missed it, I guess. Shows you how much I care Okay, about that uh, meeting. Um, but, you know, when I was at Grissom High School, there, I graduated 423 different people. And the whole time I was there, all I wanted to do was just blend into the background. Didn't want to cause a fuss. Didn't want to be stood out. I just wanted to be the kid in the back of the class that's never said anything with long hair that looked like Paul McCartney from the 1960s, but not as cool. Okay. And I slept like three periods a day. That's what I wanted to do. And I think also, we as Christians, we kind of sometimes desire the same thing. We just kind of want to blend into the background. But what does it call us? It says, well, we are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let me just say this way. We are light. We can't blend into the darkness. That because of the transformation that we have in Christ Jesus, that we have the light of the gospel, the light of Christ, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that we are a new creation, it is physically, spiritually impossible for us to blend into the world. But what differentiates us? What makes us stand out? What distinguishes us as Christians from the darkness of the world? Only the brightest light can dispel the deepest darkness. But allow me to begin with a story this morning. Um, I kind of like to begin with a story and typically like to pick on myself sometimes or talk about how my five-year-old licks subway stations. Um, That was last week. But how many of you have ever uh, been through an awkward season of life? Anybody ever been through an awkward season of life? Okay, we all have... That yearbook picture, you're tracking with me, that you wish never existed. You know, those kind of moments in life. Um, but growing up, I was, I was rather strange. I was a weird kind of kid. Okay, some would say that nothing's changed. But, um, as my children might say, okay. But we all have these awkward seasons in life. And looking back on my childhood, I was strange. I mean, I remember I used to um, stare at a globe. You might remember that glo- the globes that were about the size of a beach ball. I used to stare at a globe for like hours and just look at it, look at the different countries. And that globe was, still had the USSR. And that tells you kind of when the date was on that globe. It was old, older. Okay. Um, it's moving on. Okay. But so I would stare at that globe. I was strange, like I said. And then my mom had this book called Our World. And it had every country in, in the world. Okay. And it would just describe the people and the economic status and demographics. And I would just, I just liked being by myself, I guess. And, but my favorite book growing up was the Guinness Book of World Records. Anybody know familiar with that book? 
It was the 1988 edition. Okay. And uh, as a kid, I would stare at that book, and I would just read it cover to cover for whatever reason. The Globe was here, Our World was here, and the Guinness Book of World Records was right here, and I was by myself in a dark closet in the bathroom. I'm just kidding. Um, that, I'm not that strange. Um, but I would um, read Guinness Book of World Records, and, I, and, and that's 1988. You know, what is that, 35 years ago? Um, and I still remember the pictures and the statistics of that book. I remember there was a record of like the largest pumpkin, the tallest building, the hottest temperature ever recorded on earth, which is Death Valley Park and 134 degrees, by the way, just remembering that. But for whatever reason, looking back at the 1988 Guinness Book of World Records, unique people stood out, the people section. For example, um, I remember the guy who set the world record for the longest fingernails. Uh, it was like six feet long. Uh, we have a term for that these days called mental illness. Okay, uh, that guy. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, but for whatever reason, there was this one picture of the human side that really caught my attention. It was the world's tallest man. His name was Robert Wadlow, and he was born in 1918. And at the age of 22, he was eight feet 11 inches. And the picture I remember of him... He was standing beside his mailman, and he was standing in front of his mailbox, and I thought at the time it was the world's shortest man, and then I read in the description that the guy beside this giant guy was six foot two, and this guy who was six foot two looked like a kindergartner, okay? Here's my illustration. Could you imagine if that eight foot eleven guy walked into this door right back there, walked in? What would all of us immediately do? We would all stare at him, okay? And we were like, whoa. His height made him stand out. His height differentiated. His height made him not blend into the background. Let me ask you the question. What distinguishes you as a Christian? What distinguishes you as a believer in Jesus Christ? That when you talk to people in the world, what should make you different? When people drive up Whitesburg Drive and they see church after church after church after church, what makes those churches different than the Exxon station? Let me ask you a better question. When those same Christians in all those churches on Whitesburg Drive, when they go to work, what makes them shine? When they go into their homes, what makes them stand out from everyone else? When they talk to a salesman on the phone, what makes them, what makes people you encounter, they encounter, want what you have? This is the question we're answering today is what is our greatest evangelism tool? What is our greatest evangelism tool? I think so many times we think about tool, evangelism tool, we think about what track or, you know, the, the Romans road or any of that kind of stuff, but, but really, the ability to speak into people's life is already determined far beyond, typically, before we actually open the Bible. How many of you have ever known somebody that talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk? You can track with me as a Christian. Would you want to receive what they have if they open their Bible? 
I would imagine the decision has already been made. So the question we're answering is, what is our best evangelism tool? What should mark a believer as different, as one who has been rescued out of the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son? So our answer today is in John chapter 13. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. We'll be kind of bouncing between John 13 and John 15. We see the brightest light that we can shine in the deepest darkness. In John 13, we see the distinguishing mark of a believer. So just kind of orient us to where we are in, in John 13, but also in the sermon series, as I said, I believe, that we're in our third week of a four-week series uh, on evangelism. And the first week, we answered the question, why, why should I evangelize? You know, well, why should I even bother to share my faith? And there's a lot of reasons in that particular regard. One reason would be, okay, because God wants us to. That's a valid reason. Okay. But, but what we talked about in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is that why we should share our faith boils down in Acts chapter 1 8 because of our identity and because of what we have been given. Because of who we are and what we have. Who are we? According to Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that we are his witnesses. A witness gives the idea of an identity purpose to tell the truth when the moment when the moment presents itself so we have an identity but what do we have also we have the spirit of god that gives us power what does the spirit of god how does it give us power it gives us power to overcome fear to give us words to share and also to prompt our minds to speak and then last week we talked about why do people then resist the gospel i mean Think about the gospel. It's something that transforms our life. Not only does it guarantee us eternal life, but it allows us to have earthly, abundant life. I mean, who wouldn't want that? People resist the gospel for two reasons that we saw. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. That the God of this world blinds the minds of the unbelieving. That the reason people resist the gospel is because of spiritual warfare and also because of personal sin. Because typically there is a crutch or a reason why people Resist the gospel. And so then today we're answering this question, what is our best evangelism tool? We're going to spend the next two weeks on how. How do we share our faith? And when we're coming to John chapter 13, and that's where our passage is this morning, is what, what's the context of the passage? There's some discussion about this. We won't get into this too much. Um, but there's some discussion on how long Jesus' ministry actually was. And so, well, we won't go down that rabbit hole. And, okay, Chase Byron's mind where he's running right now. We won't go there. But um, John, the Gospel of John breaks down into three main sections. If you were here when we spent about ten years going through the Gospel of John, I think it spent two years, but anyways. Um, there's the, the Gospel of John breaks down into three main sections. You have John 1, 1 through 18 is eternity past. It's the epilogue of the Gospel of John. Then you have John 1, 19 through the end of 12 is three years. And then John 13 through the end of the book is really three weeks. So when we come into John chapter 13, if you're not familiar with where we are, this is Jesus' last night to be alive before he's crucified. He is in the upper room. That's what we call John 13 through 17, the upper room discourse Really, John 13 through 17 is Jesus' final sermon before he dies. He has some last little bit of information and commissioning of his disciples before he heads to the cross. And there are uh, loads of different truths, different theological premises that are found in John chapter 13. But really what I want to zoom in is on verse 31. If you have your text, it says this, Therefore, when he had gone out, 
Jesus said, now, notice that word now, it's a temporal marker. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in and of Himself and will glorify Him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. And then notice verse 31. I just want you to notice the first phrase. This first phrase stood out to me this week. Therefore, when he had gone out. Who's the he? Yeah, a guy named Judas. The first phrase right there refers to Judas. This is referring to Judas's exit on stage left. Judas, by this time, has set his mind to betray the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. Now, that sounds like a lot of money. Um, but in modern day, that's about $340. Okay, some of us are thinking that's a lot of money. Okay, but uh, I hope that you would not betray somebody important to you for $340. And if you do, just come talk to me. We'll, we'll have a discussion about it. Okay, I hope that you wouldn't betray your integrity for 30 pieces of silver. But that's exactly what Judas is, does. It says in the text that the enemy enters his heart. He's deceived by the enemy. He's disappointed with Jesus. Because he's finally waking up to the fact that there's no earthly kingdom and as he, as the treasurer of the twelve, is going to have probably the most important position in the kingdom besides Jesus. So Judas becomes disillusioned, he becomes disgruntled, he becomes disappointed, and he decides to cash out his time with Jesus for as much as he can and the most he can receive is $340. One commentator says this, it was an eternal night for Judas. It was the devil's day, and the devil's day is always like the darkness that descended on Egypt. What God does, he does slowly. What the devil does, he does quickly. For the devil must move fast because his days are limited. God has all eternity to accomplish his purposes. You know, I don't believe that Judas was an authentic believer. I don't believe he was because it says in John chapter 17 that he's the son of hell, the son of perdition. But think about this guy named Judas. He followed Jesus for three years. He heard all of the messages on the power of God, on the kingdom of God, on the grace of God, on the gospel, and yet he became deceived. Um, Therefore, when he had gone out, we look at a man named Judas and we think that That really can't happen to me. That can't happen to anybody I know. Let me just say something really quick. Um, And I've said this, I say this almost every week, and and forgive me if it becomes monotonous. Actually, I don't really care. Um, So, but it's, the, the, the reason I don't care is because I believe it's true. That I think a lot of people that sit in churches today are deceived. They think because they know the truth that they believe the truth. They think that because they're a good person or they're better than that guy, that they're going to heaven. And here we are. We see this man named Judas. He spends three years with the Son of God, and he becomes deceived. I mean, he spent time with with Jesus, and he still didn't put two and two together. But it also got me thinking about this. That even true believers in Jesus Christ from time to time can be deceived, can be enthralled in the snares 
of sin and darkness. If you don't believe me, go talk to Peter, go talk to Abraham, go talk to David. Who else? From time to time, the enemy can have his power veiling over our eyes, and we are deceived by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life by the world, by the enemy, and by our own ego. I was, um, tell you a quick story, this week I was listening to one of my favorite preachers on YouTube, and he, um, he was sharing a message out of Psalm 32, and it was a message that just, I've seen personally, he's seen personally many, many times if, if Christians have started on the road and become like Judas, they shatter their faith, they shatter their lives on the rocks of sin. And I even sent this YouTube link to a couple of guys in ministry. And, he, and this guy who shared about Psalm 32, which got me thinking about this verse right here, he talked about this guy who was a seminary graduate, a former mentor of his, and um, how this guy who mentored him, who discipled him, was a seminary grad, who was a pastor, how this guy he knew hated paying federal income tax. Well, who likes it anyways? But pay it. So what he did was he converted his home to a church to get the tax write-off. Well, the IRS didn't particularly like that. So his former mentor, to get away from the IRS, because it was banging, literally banging on his door, he left the country, and the statute of limitations brought him back. When he came back, he went into prison, and then he exited out of prison. He lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his career. He lost his children. He lost everything important to his life. And his former mentor was then died in a camper in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and 12 people attended his funeral. Any of us are susceptible to Psalm 32. Any of us are susceptible to sin. And we see this man named Judas. He has had every opportunity to see the truth, to touch the truth, to understand and believe in the truth, yet he doesn't. He is deceived by the enemy. Therefore, he had gone out, and Jesus said to him, Now is the Son of Man to be glorified. And to kind of sum it all up, the preacher said this, A Christian who strays... From the presence of God walks along the edge of an abyss. Before I go any further, um, I just want you, real quick, I just want to have a reality check. Um, If you've never been born again, that could be your fate. If you do not know Christ Jesus, then I would encourage you to see the truth. I pray that the, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that the Spirit of God will open your eyes to the truth. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, be careful of the snares of the enemy so you don't crash your life on the rocks of sin. But then you notice in verse 31, so Judas exits stage left, and then Jesus begins his sermon again. Now is the Son of man to be glorified. If you remember in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when we talked about that, you know, alarm bells are going off because the Spirit of God is going to descend. And so they see this in nationalistic terms. And this happens about, you know, a few days or a couple of weeks before Acts 1a. And then again, they see this, the Son of Man to be glorified. They see that one phrase in nationalistic terms, and we'll talk about it more in just a minute. And God is glorified in him, and if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Tongue twister. Little children, I am with you a little while longer, and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. If you are Peter... 
And you see that the Son of Man will descend. It will be glorified. What are you thinking? If you remember our time in the Gospel of John, we spent, like I said, two years going through the Gospel of John. If you remember that reference, the Son of Man in verse 31, is referring to Daniel chapter 7 and the glory of the Son of Man. His earthly kingdom will be established. So Peter, when he hears the Son of Man is to be glorified, instantaneously he is thinking as a Jew in the first century, he thinks that the Son of Man will come and establish his kingdom forever. And that's why Peter in verse 36 says this, Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Why does he say that? He doesn't expect him to be glorified in his death. He expects Jesus to be glorified in his earthly kingdom on earth and to overthrow the Romans, which is why Simon Peter says that. But let us return to our question. Jesus knows he's about to die. He knows he's about to resurrect. He knows he's about to ascend into heaven. He knows that this is the last sermon he gives before he dies He knows he is about to leave them as little children, as he says in verse 33. So what does he want them to do after he is gone? How does he want them to live? How does he want them to stand out amongst the crowd? Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Loving one another as believers. But I I also take that to mean outside of just church walls. Even as I have loved you, that you also ought to love one another. Now, how many of you have ever heard this verse before? Okay, so there you go. It's pretty popular. But one of the things I love about the scripture is that you can read a verse 40 times and get 40 different things out of it. Anybody else know that? I've known this verse. I've memorized this verse. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also ought to love one another. Someone else had to point this out to me. The question is, what's new about it? What's new about that? Because we see a version of that, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also ought to love one another. We see a version of that in Leviticus 19.18, the Old Testament law, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So what's new about it? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. That's not the new part. If I could put it in bold or yellow, I didn't do it on this one. Even as I have loved you, that is the new part. So not only anymore are we to love our neighbor as ourselves. We see that in Matthew 22. We see it in Leviticus 19.18. But we see that we are to love others as Christ loved us. In video game terms, he levels up. I mean, Mario gets the mushroom. He goes up to the next level, okay? So Jesus takes this idea of the Levitical law and he makes it a new commandment. He elevates it beyond loving our neighbor as ourself. Instead, we're to love one another even as Christ loved us. But what does that mean? How did Christ love us? Have you noticed in your text, with Jesus doesn't answer here. He answers what happens as a consequence of us loving one another, but he doesn't answer how we are to love one another as Christ loved us. If you have your Bible, now turn to John 15. So, new commandment is to love one another as Christ loved us, but what does that mean? How did he truly love us? Verse 12, this is my point this morning, stand out for the gospel by loving others, but what does that mean? Verse 12 of chapter 15 
This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. He just said that earlier in the upper room discourse. But this is the definition of what he's talking about. This is how Christ loved us. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. Okay. How did Jesus love us? He loved us sacrificially. To give and not to get. Stand out for the gospel, loving others to give and not get. To give to others at your own detriment for their benefit. Expecting nothing in return. How many of you, you don't have to answer this, how many of you have ever given money to somebody, just, you know, to somebody as a gift, but in the back of your mind, you secretly hoped you got it back, okay? Or, or, or they did something nice for you in the future because you gave them money. That's not this type of love. The love of Christ to us, the love that we should show to one another specifically in this room, the love that we should show to people in the world, the light that we shine the brightest is our love at our detriment to their benefit. To give and not to get. The Greek philosopher, the big Aristotle, uh, Shaquille O'Neal is his, his real name, um, was, was recently interviewed. And he was talking about philanthropy and how a lot of people will do something nice for somebody and then just go on their Instagram and brag about it. Have you ever seen that before? Um, I'm not picking on anybody here. It was Shaquille O'Neal. Blame him. Okay. Um, but that's not the love of God. That's not the love that I see here. The love that Christ gave to us is for our benefit and at his detriment. What do I, why do I say that? What did Christ have to do? He died in our place to pay for our sin in full. That's how he displays his love to us. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The same love that transformed our life can transform their life. So let them see him in you. All true love costs. All true evangelism costs. All sacrificial care for one another costs. All true selflessness costs. If we have a hope of reciprocation, of showing love to somebody else, then that's the love of the world. The love of Christ is for our benefit, is for our benefit at his death. And at his sacrifice for us. That's the standard that we should have for loving one another, but also loving people in the world. But what does that look like? You know, what does it look like to love people? You know, what can we practically do on a daily basis? I think we can love people several different ways. I mean, we can give of our money, as I've already mentioned that. You know, we, we give a loan. Or don't do that. Just give. And I've seen money destroy families, man. I've seen it, you know, where people borrow money from their parents and then it gets super duper awkward. Friends, if you want to show somebody love with money, just give it to them without strings attached, please. Don't don't cause dysfunction to your family. Don't do that. It's not a good idea. Uh, Give of, of your spiritual life. How do you want to love one another? Give of your spiritual life. Disciple people. You know, some of the deepest wounds that I have in ministry are from those I've discipled. You know, that just <clears throat> give of your emotions. Romans twelve fifteen says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Meeting people where they are costs you. Give of your time. 
Give of your words. Dad's in the room. We are notoriously harsh on our children just because we want them to achieve and to be great at something. But make sure you show them words of affirmation. Make sure you love them. That's one way we can show love and care. But, you know, Byron's holy grail is his time. Um, if you know my personality, I'm a little bit protective of my time. And that is kind of my biggest thing. Um, you know, the Lord this week put me to the test, so to speak. I didn't figure this out until after the test. That's the way it typically works. But uh, the Lord put me to the test. I mean, I was, I'm doing a sermon series. I'm going out. I'm teaching an evangelism class. So guess what God does every time? Okay. <laughs> well, here's the situation. Let's see how you hold up. I shared this story in my evangelism class this week. Oh, well, let me back up. Um, they say that pastors only work one day a week. Okay, a fan of the running joke. I at least work two. Okay, Wednesdays and Sundays. Um, Sundays is my day. That's the day that I do my heavy lifting. It's the day I go be by myself in a dark closet somewhere with headphones in, listening to worship music, and I just study and I prepare for Sundays. That's my whole day on Wednesday. That's my day. Don't mess with it, right? I don't do lunch appointments. I don't do doctor's appointments. I don't do anything besides just studying the Bible. But. You know, we're doing a sermon series on go out, and I'm talking about loving others to give and not to get, and I, I thought about time, and then I'm sitting there. I usually go to uh, Panera Bread. That's been where my go-to for the last, I don't know, four years or so. I used to go to McDonald's, and then anyways, moving on. And this week, I decided to change it up, and I went to Starbucks. Okay, don't judge me for that. Anyways, okay. Um, so I'm sitting at Starbucks, and I'm doing a sermon series on going out, on, and I'm teaching a class. And, you know, this guy named Don, and I would see him every week at Panera Bread. And he was an older guy, and he would just be cordial with me, he would talk to me, just chit-chat, you know, he's just looking for a friend, looking for a conversation. And, you know, I'm, I'm cordial, I'm not mean to this guy, but I'm just, I'm busy, you know, I mean, it's my time, it's Wednesday, I'm, I'm go mode, right? Well, you know, I'm sitting there, no longer Panera Bread, where I know him from, but this guy at Starbucks literally sits down right in front of me, and I recognize him. It's that guy from Panera Bread that tries to actually strike up conversations with me every week. I'm there. And then, you know, light bulbs are going off in Byron's brain, you know. And this Don guy is Don. He, he just starts talking to me. Now, I have a choice to make at that very moment. Am I going to show him love and give of my time? Or am I going to <laughs> just completely rebel against what I've been talking about? I said, okay, okay, Lord, I, I got it, I got it, I got it, okay. And so this guy, sure enough, struck up a conversation, and I just began talking to him and building relationships and time. And I have failed that test of spending time and building relationships with Don again and again and again and again and again. And the Lord just decided to put, plop him right down in front of me, while I'm doing this sermon series, to see if I'm pa- going to pass the test. How can you show other people love? Who is somebody in your life that you're getting to know that may not follow Christ? How can you show that person love for their gain at your detriment, for their benefit at your cost? True love always costs. True evangelism always cost it changes your relationship in the least with that person it makes things a little bit different 
stand out for the gospel, loving others to give and not to get. But why does it even matter? I mean, why does it matter if I treat my one another, specifically in this room in the context, but also people outside of the church? Why does it matter how I treat people? Verse 35. By this, all men will know. The word know there, I believe, is the Greek word gnosko, but TMI, it's a future tense indicative mood. Again, TMI. What is the indicative mood? It's the mood of certainty. By this, all men will certainly know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The best way for people to know that you're a believer is the love that you display. You know, we think of evangelism. We think about the tracks we should use and the Romans road. And we think, but all of that is really comes on the back end of showing somebody you love and you care for them. All men will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. I mean, how do we go out? And what's the best way? Only the brightest light can dispel the deepest darkness. What is the best way for us to share our faith? It is by loving people. How we treat one another in this room matters. I heard of somebody, um, oh goodness, it's probably been about 25 years ago. And um, they were just talking about a church, you know, and they said, well, if those people are like that, then I don't want what they have. That's the testimony, that's the light that we shine to the world, how we treat one another, how we treat people at work matters, how we treat our children matters, how we treat our spouse matters, how we treat other believers and other saints matters, how we treat people in the drive through window, the people that are just the sometimes people, the people that are at random, how we smile at them and talk to them and show them respect and love, all of that matters. Why? Because by this all men will know. They will know that you're a Christian, not by the words you say, not by the life that you live, but better than that, by the love that you show. Friends, listen to me. How many of you have ever known a Christian that talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk? You mind talking to me? Okay, that's, that, we all have known those people. Do, do we want what they have? I mean, think about the, also the people that we know, that, that, that the Christians, they have the life that is all buttoned up, you know, they have it all perfectly together, right? They... You know, they mow their grass diagonally, right? They go to church every time the, <laughs> the doors are open. I mean, they, they read their Bible, they memorize scripture, and, and they're just this uh, marble model of Jesus. But they're cold as a lizard. Ever met those people before? By this, all men will know for certain that you are a believer in Jesus Christ by the love that you show for others. Loving others to give, not to get. My point today is this, points others to Jesus. Loving others to give and not to get points others to Jesus. You know, um, friends, I want people in the community to look at us, people of Calvary Bible Church, and say, I don't know what they have, but I want it. I don't know why they're actually nice, but I want it. How we treat people make, makes a difference for the kingdom of God. Um, in college, I was working on a Sunday, Sunday afternoon, and 
the church crowd is not popular in restaurants. I'll just say it that way. And I was waiting, I've shared this story before, I was waiting on a group of Christians because they evangelized to me. They, they showed me this track, they gave me this million dollar bill, and they guess this is the best gift you ever have. And of course I'm a Christian, I know, and they, and they leave me like 6% tip. Do you think I would have looked at that track if I was a non-believer? You better believe I would just chunk that thing right in the garbage can. How we treat people actually makes a difference for the kingdom of God, even the small things. What is our best evangelism tool? It is our love for people. Our love for one another in this room, our love that we display for our coworkers, to the people that we encounter every single day. Only the brightest light can dispel the deepest darkness. But let's just answer the question, so what? I mean, how do we apply this to our life? Every week this, for this series, this will be a four-week series, we'll, we'll end it next week on talking about how do we share our faith on the other two uh, L's on life and lingo. We'll talk about that next week. But today I just want to isolate on the issue of love. How do we share the gospel with our love? And this is what I want you to do. Every week of this sermon series, I've asked you this simple question. Who are you getting to know that may not follow Christ? Who are we getting to know that may not follow Christ? I asked you last week to pray for them. What I want you to do today is I want you to picture that same person. Who is someone in your life that doesn't know Christ that you're burdened to reach? Picture their name, their face in your mind. I see mine now. My question is this. According to the scripture, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Maybe that person is a child that feels judged every time. You present the gospel. Maybe it's a spouse that's just shut down to the gospel. Maybe it's your neighbor that thinks they're a good person, which is why they're going to go to heaven. Picture that person in your mind and then answer this simple other question. How can I show them love? How can I just show them care for their benefit at my detriment? Maybe it's a widowed neighbor next to you. Maybe... Just go mow the grass and just interact with her and make her not feel lonely and care for her. Uh, maybe it's a child. Maybe your child just needs to, to hear grace and love from your lips because you've been hard on them their whole life. Um, what do they need? How can you show that person love to give and not to receive in return? That is my application today. A new commitment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also ought to love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Allow me to finish with a thought. Who are you? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, who are you? You are a witness for God, purpose to speak the truth in love. What do you have? You have power by the Holy Spirit to overcome the fear in your stomach The Spirit of God gives you power to have the words to say and the courage to overcome fear. Why do people not believe? Because of the darkness of the world and because of their own sin. And why should people want the gospel? They should see in us the love that comes from God, a love for them that is to their gain and not to yours. So, love, that is my application today, the person that you've been praying for. Uh, before I close, just allow me to share. Um, I, I, think, I think there are people in churches today that are blinded to the truth. I think that because they've come forward an altar call that they are saved, but they're truly not. We're not saved by an altar call, but by faith in Christ alone. 
Um, my question is this. If you don't have Christ in you, if you don't have a growing relationship with Christ, if you died tonight and you weren't 100% sure of where you would go, either eternal life or eternal death, then right where you are, I would encourage you to believe in Jesus Christ. Invite him into your life. Repent of your sin. Believe in him that he came and he died for you. He was buried and rose again to save you from your sin. The only way to heaven is by faith, by believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. Uh, If you're not sure of where you are with Christ, what I would encourage you to do is just find me after the service. I'm down front. I would love to share with you. And if you want help kind of guiding you in how to become a Christian, I would love to help you in that endeavor. Allow me to close with Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this morning. I, I just I, I pray for a couple things. Lord, I, I pray that um, I just pray that there was there's not a harshness in my tone and in my mind and in my heart, and that is not in any way the desire of my heart. Um, Lord, I really truly love the people in this room. Uh, I've known many of them for 35 years. Now, Lord, I thank you just for just their love for you and their love for this church and their devotion and their faithfulness to the calling of Christ. And, Lord, I, may I be like them when I am older. And, Lord, I just pray that there was no harshness in my tone. And, Lord, I pray that that would be lifted from our minds. And forgive me if I have come across in any way, in shape, or form in that regard. Lord, I do pray that a sense of urgency was in my voice. That there are people in our lives that don't know you. There are people in our lives that are far from the truth. That the God of this world has blinded to the minds of the unbelieving, Lord. That that there are people that are dying every single day that don't know you. And Lord, I pray that we would have a sense of urgency for those people. That we would care that they don't know you. And Lord, for the people that we're getting to know that may not follow you, Lord, I pray that today, this week, that we would show them love. Like Don in Starbucks. All he wanted was somebody to just talk to him. Lord, I pray that the message of the gospel and the time that I had in sharing about my faith, Lord, that would come to fruition. And Lord, I just thank you for all of the ways that you display your love and your grace and your kindness to us. May we display that to one another and to those in the world. And uh, may we be lights of the darkness. For only the brightest light can dispel the deepest darkness. I pray that we are the bright light of Christ. And that we would take it to the ends of the earth. And we lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.